Coming up on this week's show, Elite comes to the Vectrex. A Monkey Island secret has been found. And we're joined by Cinematica's Justin Silverman. This week's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN and our friends at Harry's. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 236, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And is that all? Yeah, that's we're, it. Oh my God. We're missing seems, someone. Seems really empty. What's Joe doing? <laughs> He's, is, is he skiving today? Well, Joe had a bit of a late night last night because um, he had some rather big news. Joe and his partner, Charlie, welcomed their first baby. Oh, my God. We're new generation of the Retro Hour podcast. That's absolutely fantastic to hear. I thought he was up playing Resident Evil all night. Yeah, usually if Joe's up till 4am, that's what he's doing, isn't it? But uh, not, not this time. He was actually uh, with his partner, Charlie, uh, delivering a little baby girl to the world. So um, we thought we'd let him have just one day off to take a bit of time off and recuperate, but (laughs) absolutely made it for you, Joe. Congratulations, mate. And I can't believe he's become the first of the Retro Hour crew to have a baby. I think you're going to be next, Ravi. Oh, God. Who who with? Who with? Um, (laughs) That is the golden question. (laughs) It's it's really nice, actually. He just sent us a photo, and uh, she looks so small and cute. It's amazing. And that is our future host and future retro gamer there. You just know that before she's out of nappies, Joe will have her playing like, you know, play a two on Sonic the Hedgehog, she'll be Tails or something. Yeah, Guaranteed. she's also going to like completely destroy his whole collection. You realise that? <laughs> yeah, we didn't tell him that bit before he announced he was having a baby. Didn't want to put him off or anything, but you know. What about you, fun. Dan? Well, I got my missus a dog recently, so I think I'm all right for the next, what, that, 10 that's years? That's also destroying your collection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to remember to keep my office door locked and keep him out of there, I must admit. <laughs> uh, but this week we're taking it old school, Ravi, just me and you. When was yeah. the last time we did a show together? Must be like years ago now ah absolutely years ago and uh we've got a really good guest here who's justin silverman and we talk about cinemassacre so cinemassacre is an absolutely huge network but it started really early on the kind of youtube scene we talk about like the development of that angry video games nerd how he got involved but also he runs an amazing gaming convention called too many gamers um yeah you might recognise him from the rental reviews that they did on Cinemassacre. And that is one of my favourite series that they do on there. I think I actually binge-watched pretty much all of them between Christmas and New Year. You know, started watching, like, I think they did um, one of my favourite Christmas movies, Ernest Saves Christmas. Oh, yeah. Which is, uh, <laughs> most people regard that as, like, the worst Christmas film ever. But every Christmas, I sit down and watch it on Christmas Day. Bit of a tradition ever since I was a kid. I'm normally, admittedly, the only person in the family who actually wants to watch it. Most people tend to leave the room when I'm watching it, but they did like a 40-minute episode all about it. So I sat down and watched that, then I started watching all the older Christmas ones they did, and then just generally all the horror films that they talk about. Because, I mean, they've got a great setup when they do that show. They've essentially recreated... It was originally like a wood grain. 80s video shop rental studio set. Then it went into like the 90s kind of one they've got now. But I just find them talking about movies. I mean, these guys are all such experts in the field that I find it really interesting to watch. Yeah, and it's a nice mix as well because we talk about VHS, we talk about movie culture, of course, those really bad 90s movies and like some of the selections for rental reviews. But we also talk about indie games and how they're doing a remake at the moment of the AVGN game. They're publishing that. And, you know, it's just really interesting crossover because we are retro gaming, but we're also retro tech. 
Yeah, and VHS. I don't know if you've seen. Do you think it's had a bit of a comeback recently? Oh yeah. I, I, have you watched Brutal Moose? I, no. I watch Brutal Moose all the time, and he just goes through collections of old VHS tapes, even to the point that he records his whole YouTube channel on VHS. It just <laughs> looks wicked. And like, I was really thinking, oh my god, that's so good. The quality of it. <laughs> It is odd because I actually got a VHS player um, given to me from my uncle because he had a load of tapes he wanted to transfer into digital. And I was kind of kicking myself because about, probably about two years ago, I threw out all my old VHS tapes. I only had like a couple left, like, you know, my favorite movies, like War Games, I kept on VHS. So I remember, you know, I was a kid when I got that for Christmas and I always wanted to keep it. And I watched it again and I thought, there is something really nostalgic about watching a VHS on a CRT TV. And in typical me fashion, I started going through and uh, rebuying all the tapes I threw out two years ago off eBay again. So. Well, also, like, you know, with Justin and, uh, and Brutal Moose and these guys, all their VHSs were NTSC. Yeah. So they had a little bit of kind of higher quality, but they always have that, what did I used to call it? The American soap opera look. You know, yeah. it's, it's got that kind of vibe where we had the really rubbish power ones, to be honest. All those colours kind of uh, merging into each other and th- those really aggressive hues and everything as well that you got on NTSC. Yeah, <laughs> so, so it's uh, a really interesting chat this week. And, you know, if you're an AVGN fan, this is not to be missed. Yeah, Justin Silverman is our special guest. He'll be on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, we've got some good stories to talk about this week as well in the next few minutes. Before we do, let's just give a big thank you to this week's sponsor, our amazing friends at Harry's. Now, obviously, with lots of the world being in lockdown for months upon end now, I think it's fair to say a lot of us have been looking a little bit hairy to put it mildly. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I got my first proper haircut about a week ago and the hairdresser, I think it took her about an hour to get... I, I, I'm <laughs> going on Friday and I'm really scared I'm getting my first haircut, but um, I, I, I've not gone for the beard trim because I'm like, I've got Harry's, I can actually style it myself. <laughs> Well, that is one thing, you know, to avoid turning into a total ball of hair. Uh, We are lucky that we've got Harry's now. Um, They're actually a really interesting company with a great story behind them as well. It's Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were fed up with overpriced razors. And they decided to start their own company on a mission to fix shaving. And the only way that they could do this is by buying their own factory. Now, their mission is that they take less profit by offering you great quality products at a fair price. And their amazing high quality blades are almost half the price of the leading five blade brand now we've all tried harry's out before i mean i've been a convert since about last september uh, you and joe actually shaved off your covid beards recently as well with it well i, I styled mine I, I think the day that i kind of shaved my beard off i'm going to be really scared because i look about 10 <laughs> <laughs> well so even if you're not going for the complete baby smooth look like me i mean harry's is going to help you out here as well which is why we'd like you to start shaving with harry's today help out the retro hour podcast and claim your trial set for just three pounds nine and you'll get it delivered to you, including a razor handle, a five-blade cartridge, a foaming shave gel pack, and a travel blade cover as well. Now, all you've got to do to claim this exclusive offer is nip onto this website right now, harrys.com forward slash retro. That's harrys.com forward slash retro. Thanks to our very good friends at Harry's. Now, I can tell that you did the news stories this week, Ravi. First one in there, <laughs> all about the Vectrex. Oh, yeah. This is absolutely everywhere at the moment. So... You know, Elite get uh, absolutely fantastic game. Uh, Legend get, gets ported over to a lot of different systems because it's the way that Elite was coded was that it was basically kind of coded in a in a way that it would easily be ported over. So it, it 
the system could get coded and then everything kind of works. It's quite portable, the code. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah. And like the Vectrex is wireframe. And I always thought, wow, Elite would look absolutely fantastic on the Vectrex. And it seems like a port is actually in development, which is really cool because we've seen all these like, you know, 2,600 versions of stuff. And uh, the guy behind this port is Ralph Kornman. And Ralph actually was lead engineer programmer on Command & Conquer Tiberian Alliances. He he worked on uh, Lord of Ultima and Battleforge as well. So this is a, you know, proper programmer giving it a go. It's not just a a hobby thing and uh from the screenshots that i've seen so far it looks absolutely beautiful well there's a little video here that i'll link up in the article um on our show notes and it's only about a minute long but it shows the intro screen to elite and like you said i mean i love the way it looks because i mean that always looked great on the bbc micro and those kind of systems anyway but having it in that kind of neon glow blue wireframe vector graphics it just gives it kind of an out-of-this-world kind of look. And even bizarrely, you know, even though it's like, what, a 36-year-old game now, looking at that still makes me think, oh, the future. <laughs> well, well, the speed that it draws the vectors as well is really fast compared to the other systems. You know, it, it really looks like it was kind of made for it. And um, he's been talking about how certain menus were, were really flickering and stuff because, you know, it's hard sometimes to display text and stuff on the Vectrex. So he's actually made like two versions of the menu and stuff. So he's really paying attention to the kind of details and the specific stuff on the Vectrex to make this Elite really shine. You know, when I watch videos of Elite, and, and I know it was a legendary game, and, you know, David Braben is someone we'd love to have on the show. We've nagged him so much on Twitter. Hasn't got back to us yet. If anyone knows David Braben, get him on this podcast. We'd love to talk to him about Elite. I think I was too thick to play those games. Well, yeah, I was too thick to play them as well, but I, w I was really into the um, concept because Terry Pratchett yep. wrote a book, um, Only You Can Save Mankind, which is part of like uh, Johnny and the Bomb series. And uh, that was all based on Elite, but um, I think he killed all the aliens in his dream and then they all died on everybody's game. It was it was a really cool kind of concept and Terry Pratchett really kind of got, got that down to a T, you know. And the fact that they had, you know, essentially it was like an entire universe contained on a floppy disk or even a cassette tape before that as well. I mean, even now to this day, the fact that he could cram so much into a game on limited systems still kind of blows my mind. And I feel like I will one day actually sit down and learn how to play them properly. As a kid, you know, I'd boot up Frontier, I'd watch that great introduction, then i think, oh, I'll go and play Zool or something instead. You know, after a couple of minutes after I'd watched it, I guess it was probably a bit of a, you know, attention deficit or something. Just didn't have well, the well, for me, but... it felt a bit flight me. You know what yeah. I mean? I had to try and kind of work out all the controls and take off, and <laughs> so I was far too lazy for that. And I also had it pirated, so I never had the um, <laughs> manual. Oh, really? Yeah, I guess the manual probably helped quite a yeah. lot with a game like that. <laughs> you know what we need to do? We need to get this Vectrex port, Ravi. Lock you in a room for like a week with just that on the Vectrex. That's it. And yeah, then you'll I'll come out an expert. <laughs> be in some next universe that's just been procedurally <laughs> generated, and I'll be like, look at this. So uh, we'll link that up for you to check out the uh, progress of Elite on the Vectrex so far. Very cool. Uh, Sierra, of course, another company that we've talked about a lot on this podcast before. I mean, we've done entire episodes about Sierra. And you know, adventure games, I have always been a big fan of. You know, that was something that, as a kid, that would really draw me in, the stories. And I'd just sit there and get completely lost in adventure games for hours. So, you know, I wasn't all about just platform games. 
games. I love adventures as well. But there is a new book coming out dedicated to Sierra. Yeah, so we had um, Sean Mills on the show, and he was actually kind of talking about this book and promoting it. And uh, Sean Mills was the guy who's like continuing their legacy. So he had that company, Infamous Quest, which was yeah. continuing the stuff. Well, this book is finally out, and it's doing fantastically well. So this is the Sierra Adventure, and it's the story of Sierra Online. And it's available at the moment in paperback, hardback cover. And as we talked about in the interview, you know, it's got absolutely everything in there. He's, he's going through the like edutainment period. He's going through the golden era, the, the Sierra Network when it came out. Um, of course, Leisure Suit Larry. And, uh, you know, the changes in technology, uh, the police as well, when you had Police Quest and uh, many titles like that. I love the fact as well that he's actually done these really thorough interviews with over 50 people who worked at Sierra from like, you know, producers, artists, designers, musicians, marketing people, managers as well, all telling the story of working at Sierra and what the company was like in their own words as well. And I always think when you get a book talking about a company like this, getting that kind of inside view, and especially that many different people talking about what it was like, just gives you a really accurate, rounded picture of what it must have been like to work there back in their heyday. Yeah, it's a proper like background story. But also, if, if you check out um, Sean's YouTube channel and on the site, the SierraAdventure.com, there's a section called uh, Sierra Short Trip. And basically, mm. Sean's going through like all the different titles here. So it, it just looks fantastic. You know, he's got uh, Heroes Quest. He's got Police Quest at the moment. And I'm sure he's going to be adding more of these. And it's like just all these extra details and kind of background stories behind the games that you wouldn't usually know. So if you listen to that episode and you thought, I'd love to get hold of a copy of that, because he smashed it on Kickstarter, didn't he? When he launched oh it yeah, last absolutely year. smashed it. And now it's uh, uh, selling outside of the Kickstarter. Yeah, so that's uh, the SierraAdventure.com if you want to get hold of that. Uh, the Analog Pocket, that is something that you might want to get hold of, but unfortunately you might struggle a bit now. <laughs> Yeah, so they've been doing pre-orders of the Analog Pocket and all those pre-orders are kind of completely sold out. So um, they're going to have to make some more, basically, because of the demand for this machine. Now, we've talked about the Analog Pocket on the show before. And I think, you know, it did kind of seem like there was a time when... We'd be talking about, you know, uh, like new modern retro system of the week. And every week there'd be something new coming along. This one, out of all the systems that we've talked about, I think was one that I looked at and thought, I really want to get hold of one of those. Because not only is it made by analog, I think I've got a great track record of delivering quality retro products anyway. You know, their, their track record's kind of flawless, really. But also, the fact this system just looks so well made. Now, the price of it is $199, and it's a little handheld that looks pretty much like an old-school Nintendo Game Boy. But in, you've got in a sexy really, black as well. Yeah, and it's like shiny screen on there. It's got, you know, really nice high-resolution screen. And you've got a D-pad, some nice buttons that look, you know, that the, the look like nice chunky buttons that you can press down like the original Game Boy. But not only can it play, um, I think it's Game Boy original games. You can do um, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance as well. But also they've now got all these different adapters that allow, allow you to play lots of different handheld systems on here as well. Like for $29.99, they do a Game Gear adapter. There's also a Neo Geo Pocket color adapter. And I was quite pleased to see that coming soon is an Atari Lynx adapter as well. That's awesome. And, you know, another feature as well is that it's got nano loops in there. And now I think this may be a reason why 
they've sold out so quickly because Nano Loops is a piece of software that's used for making music. And video game musicians, there's a lot of Game Boy people that really, you know, kind of die for Nano Loops. So the fact that it's built into this system is wicked because it means it's a little portable kind of music creation system as well. So that may be also pushing demand as well as all of these other systems like Game Gear, Neo Geo, and uh, the ability to, to do links later on. And they've got a little um, pocket link cable as well. What I think is really cool about this is not only can you connect the the pocket to another pocket, but also you can connect it to Game Boy, Game Boy Color, or Game Boy Advance as well for multiplayer games. So essentially you can play someone on the original hardware and on your pocket with a link cable. How long is it going to be till Look Mom No Computer gets about 100 of these, links them all <laughs> up together and make some kind of monster? Well, I mean, I'm craving one and I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't get one when they were briefly in stock because I, I just think, you know, as a way of playing those handheld games, that's something that I actually don't really enjoy doing all that much on the original systems because I think, you know, we've, we've kind of talked about the um, the screen mods and stuff you can do for the Game Gear and the Atari Lynx, you know, the McWill mod that gives yeah, you a nice yeah. modern screen stuff on there as well. But all that kind of stuff, not only is it complicated to do yourself, but also the expense of it does kind of add up, you know, when you do it for all your retro systems. But I find that when I turn on my Atari Lynx, for example... I mean, the screen was never great to begin with, but now I've kind of kind of hold it at a weird angle to kind of see it properly and the buttons are kind of getting a bit flaky and things on there as well. And it just kind of feels like a bit of a hassle to play those games. And the not fact a- that it does all these systems as well is crazy. And like, you're going to get all the bonuses like extended battery life and, you know, you, you don't have to take it apart and clean the contacts of the D-pad or, you know, kind of yeah. uh, uh, get it running. It's all going to be perfect brand new hardware, which is just really, I think it's quite worth the price, actually. It's a quite expensive machine, but um, if you're really into handhelds, go for it. And you want an experience that kind of feels like an original system because it's FPGA-based, this machine. Um, And also, there's actually, they've opened it up to developers as well. So it means that people can develop their own FPGA cores. So it means, you know, if you've got like a system you want to emulate on it, you can just do it yourself. You know, they've released all that for free to everyone. So Yeah, they might be able to port over stuff like the Amiga and... uh... Like Acorn, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> yeah, coding basic with the D-pad. That'd be fun. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, it's great to see that it's selling really well. Because I mean, I imagine releasing any kind of system during, you know, what's going on in the world right now must be a bit of a nervous time. You know, everyone's kind of unsure if anyone's got any money right now. But... Well, well, that also might be why it's kind of sold out as well. You know, they might have said, right, yeah. we're going to have a limited number. If we can't produce this many because the factories aren't open or whatever, we'll have a limited. Once this is sold, then we'll release more. And it makes good headlines, doesn't it? The analog pocket yeah. is sold out. It's weird, isn't it? Because when you see something sold out, it makes you want it even more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oldest marketing trick in the book. It's sold out for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's not very often that we find out new things about our favorite games of all time, but I thought this was a pretty cool story. Now, we're talking about adventure games before. Monkey Island, you know, if not my favorite video game of all time, I think definitely my favorite adventure game. Well, this is a news report that someone's found on Twitter, they've posted this. It's from a TV station called New Center 4 at Kron TV. And back in 1990, they took a trip to Lucasfilm Studios. They're making more than just movies at George Lucas's Skywalker Ranch. The fact is that one in five of the ranch employees work on computer entertainment, believe it or not. High-tech reporter Richard Hart went behind the scenes today to find them working on the next step 
and something called interactive games. These writers and artists work for Lucasfilm at Skywalker Ranch in Marin County, but they're not making a movie. They're working on the next step in entertainment. Lucasfilm began making computer games in 1982, and their business doubles each year. Today, women, not teenage boys, make up a third of the audience for computer games. This one, called Battle of Britain, is bought and played principally by men aged 25 to 50. Now, they're laying down all the stats about, you know, the different audience and stuff that the games have. But what's interesting is, on screen, they actually show some kind of early versions of these games running. Now, they've got Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis in there as well. But also, what I thought was quite interesting is right at the start, there is a little clip of only a couple of seconds of Monkey Island while it was being developed. Now, Monkey Island's a game that I kind of feel like I know inside out. And I watched that clip and I was like, I don't recognise that area of the map it turns out that i don't know how well you know monkey island but there is a bit where you go um when you're on monkey island itself and you actually go and talk to um i think there's a character called herman Toothrot. i i you're the expert (laughs) (laughs) yeah i only got so far on that game (laughs) well he's a character that you meet on the island and he's lived there for years and he's kind of you know he's kind of the only other person on the island but usually you walk into that scene from the left and you kind of talk to him, and you're overlooking the island, but then you can't go right. However, on this little clip here, it shows you walking into that scene from the right of it, and there's a bit more of the map. And I think from memory, when you're playing it, Herman actually walks off screen that way, but you can't follow him. So someone's put this on Twitter and said, you know, again, this is someone else who's obsessed with Monkey Island. And they've tagged a few of the developers who worked on Monkey Island on there and said, uh, you know, kind of what's going on. I like it turns Tim out, Schafer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, by the looks of it, it's gone through and they've, they've tagged a load of different people on here as well. Um, yeah, Tim of Legends, one person who replied and uh, asking essentially, was this an area of the game that got cut? And it turned out that, yeah, this was an area that they decided didn't, didn't have to be in the final game. And it was um, an overlook of the cannibal village in there too. But what's cool is obviously that area of the game still existed in the code because the other character walks off screen, but you can't get there. And it makes you wonder kind of how many other areas of games are kind of blocked off, but are actually, you know, still there. You know, you know what I used to do? Um, GTA Vice City. Yeah. Uh, I, I used to do like gaps in the map. So you get through the texture map and then you'd be able to kind of fall into the <laughs> background of it. And I'd run around and look for all these secret rooms and places that weren't used in the game. And there's always assets left over, actually. There's a, a lot in... um mario as well uh, 64 and <laughs> there's loads of different titles where actually users can go and find these items and go what's that and the developer goes oh that's just something i left in there or something that wasn't used in the end well we saw that in the giggling stuff from nintendo the other week didn't we that, you yeah know, there's so yeah. much in there that you know that they didn't actually take out because you know they didn't have the time or but they just kind of blocked it off to the play because it wasn't needed but i think you know it, it's not like it says at the end of this article on kotaku it's not exactly groundbreaking news, but having a bit of new information about a game that's you know now 30 years old and seeing areas of the game that you haven't seen before, it's pretty cool, I think. So especially the fact that it came from a little you know TV news report, a local TV report from San Francisco back in 1990. So if you do want to watch that, um, it's actually uh, just a tweet. I'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our chat this week with Justin Silverman and go through the Hall of Fame, let's give a big mention to another big support Supporter, our very good friends at ExpressVPN. Now, obviously, with a lot of us being at home quite a lot recently, ExpressVPN is actually worth having on your home PC and your phone and your smart TV because they let you access the internet as if you're from a different country. So maybe like uh, Ravi and I, you've completely rinsed 
your local Netflix library. They let you connect to Netflix all around the world. And the thing is, a lot of different Netflix servers have shows that are exclusive to that region. For example, if you're a fan of Blackadder, one of the best British comedies of all time. You can check that out on Netflix UK. Uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is on Netflix Australia at the moment as well. You've got Rick and Morty on Netflix France. And you've actually been using it to watch a few of your favourite shows recently too. Yeah, um, actually, Express is so good that I had it on the other day and I logged onto Twitter and Dan was like, somebody's logging on from this country. It's like, it's me. I've left you had the, it on it was that quick. Yeah, I've left the VPN on, but not noticed. Um, yeah, I've been watching some great content on Netflix America because I have totally rinsed it in the UK. Uh, stuff like Grey's Anatomy, I was watching that. Uh, I love The Office UK, but the USA version, it's different, but it's absolutely hilarious with uh, Steve Carell. And I've been watching really good drama as well, The West Wing. All of these things that you can't get on UK Netflix. So the thing about it is as well, not only did you, you know, you said then it's really quick, you can stream them all in HD, no buffering as well, but also you can get it on every device like your phone, your laptop, your tablets, even your smart TV, the apps for like Android TV and stuff as well. And it doesn't just work with Netflix. You can unlock stuff like Amazon Prime, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, many more as well. And you can choose from almost 100 different countries. Really easy to use as well, isn't it? All you do is fire it up, change your location, hit connect, refresh your browser, and then the show, the movie that you want to watch will magically appear. So we want you to try out ExpressVPN right now, expressvpn.com slash retro. And we will give you an extra three months for free of ExpressVPN on top of a standard plan. So that is three months of ExpressVPN for free by heading to expressvpn.com forward slash retro. Thanks to our very good friends at ExpressVPN. Right, we're going to chat to Justin Silverman in just a minute. Before we do that, we just want to take a quick moment to give a big thank you to our very loyal supporters on the Hall of Fame in just a minute because we've had a patron running for quite a while now. Yeah, so we've had a patron running since February. And interestingly, as soon as we started it, kind of COVID hit. Now, um, the idea of this patron was uh, a lot of people just take the money for profit, but we always want to put it back into the show. You know, we, we get a bit of an income from the adverts. But um, we had this great plan to have this studio and, you know, we were going to have another podcast moving with us. We were going to kind of do it all up, get soundproofing in there, build the place, um, you know, have utility and electricity bills kind of supported. But I think it's been about four or five months that we've now been doing this from home. And Yeah, we're approaching six months now. It will be, yeah, not far off. Yeah, and there was a little kind of noticeable drop in quality um, with the microphones because where are you doing it at the moment, Dan? You always sound slick. Well, I'm in the studio that we've always recorded in on my own at the moment. But I mean, like we said before, we don't own this studio and, you know, we just have to get in here when, when I can. Uh, but the idea was that we wanted to make recording the show easier as well, but keep the same quality that we have in here. And I mean, you know, Joe, obviously, he's not here this week. But if I could tell you the way that Joe actually records a show, we got him because he didn't have a laptop. He only has an iPad and his phone. So we actually gave him a laptop that we bought off eBay for 50 quid that ran Windows Vista originally and we bought this to take to like play expo because it could just about run audacity just to record panels of things wasn't it yeah it is like you know yeah 2007 i think it's from and joe can't actually record the show and open a web browser at the same time 
that is how bad it is. I mean, he does anything, it crashes. And he has to sit on the floor of his gaming room or lie down on the floor, you know, with his little USB microphone. And, and this was all kind of an emergency because it was yeah. like when COVID came, we were like, oh, we can record about four shows in the studio and then quickly run around and grab all the equipment that we've got available. And also like stuff like laptops, to be honest, they were they were like gold dust at the time. Yeah, so, I mean, we originally thought oh, it's going to last like a month or six weeks or something at maximum, but obviously, like you said, it's gone on kind of six months now. So we've had a bit of a rethink, and we actually put this out to our patrons the other day, and I was overwhelmed to see, I think we had about 40 replies in a couple of hours. Everyone was so on board with this. Essentially, the patron money that we've collected so far and anything we get over the next few months, instead of like, you know, waiting for when the world's going to get back to normal, which, you know, no one knows when that's going to be. Uh, instead, we'd like to use the money that we've collected already to kind of get our home studios up to spec. So essentially, so we can make sure that, you know, Joe doesn't have to break his back lying on the floor and or doing it on his kitchen table, you know, in, a, in his cavernous west wing of his house where it echoes around <laughs> the room and everything. Um, <laughs> so. But I also think, you know, it will mean that you guys are going to get an, an immediate step up in quality as well. Yeah. And also features like having video as well which yeah. is uh, one thing that we definitely want to explore so we're going to essentially set up nice little home recording studios and everyone was really on board with this that i was pleased to see so upgrade the equipment that you know joe and ravi are using i'm all right in here for now but eventually you know we'll get me a setup at home as well that sounds as good and essentially we'll get the show up to the standard that we want to keep it at permanently but also you know, if Joe's not having to spend like, you know, an hour every week setting everything up and taking it all to bits and same at your end, it just means we can focus on the show a lot more and it makes life a lot easier. So that's the plan at the moment. Um, you know, we appreciate all your support and we're glad that you're really on board with that. And I think it makes sense as well. Cause, I mean, imagine if we put a deposit down on a place and we're paying rent, you know, for six months now, not being able and to get And then locked down. Oh God, that, that would have been a disaster. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, and exactly. I know we've got... We've got friends around the world who've gone back into lockdowns and stuff as well. So it just seems a bit like, you know, this is a much more sensible idea. So that's the plan at the moment. If you'd like to help us in our mission and, you know, obviously support the future of this show, all the money goes back into it. You can do that via our Patreon that you'll find at theretrohour.com. And for doing that, of course, you will get a mention in the very prestigious Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, thank you very much to KC. Lawrence de Brugin. Metal Jesus Rocks. Oliver Masood. And Tor Eric Backer Lunday, really appreciate your support. And if you'd like to back us on our journey, you'll find that right now at theretrohour.com. Right, thank you so much for checking out the news this week. Uh, maybe Joe will be back with us next week, you know, if he's not completely sleep deprived. Um, but, you know, we are overwhelmed by that news, incredible news, Joe. If you'd like to uh, leave him a little message of congratulations, do that on our socials, I Retro Hour UK. I think he might become a Resident Evil zombie after looking after a baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was already pretty close anyway, wasn't he, to be fair? <laughs> so next on the Retro Hour podcast, we are joined by Cinemassacre's Justin Silverman. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, as a couple of guys who love Cinemassacre content, we love retro games, movies... It is a real privilege to talk to our guests this week about all that and more. Let's welcome on the brilliant Justin Silverman. Hello. Wow, special? I I don't know. I mean, they call me special in school, but this is this is something else. <laughs> well, listen, we are going to get more into all that stuff that I mentioned a moment ago, but I thought before we do that, where did your kind of journey with video games begin then? What kind of got you into it originally? Oh, wow. Um, I guess my family had a uh, Atari 2600, so I played a lot of you know, stuff like combat and a lot of the earlier games, Pitfall, things like that. 
And then I got a hand-me-down NES and got really into Mario Brothers, where I was like beating the game in actual preschool because my mom kind of showed me how. And uh, it's still probably my best game for speedrunning or not, the first Mario Brothers. And I don't, it just kind of went from there. And then I went from um, NES to Sega Genesis to PlayStation, and now I'm more of like a, a PC gamer. But yeah, it's been a long road, I guess. So it, it was the NES that kind of caught your attention because in the UK, we got the NES really late on. So uh, it's great to hear about the kind of early titles and stuff. Yeah, because I guess I was um, one years old when the NES came out in 85. But by the time I was old enough to really play games like three, four, five, six, everyone was kind of moving on the other stuff or, you know, my uncles were didn't really care about their systems anymore. So I was getting a lot of hand me down stuff. So I had a lot of games for, you know, just, you know, not really caring too much about it. Well, you're from New Jersey. I mean, what was kind of the gaming scene like there when you were growing up? Well, I, I grew up in uh, Philly, actually, but it's, you know, right right over the river. Um, and I lived all over the country from Arizona to Florida. So I, I've been all over the place. But um, the gaming scene when I grew up, I, I didn't really, it was just kind of like friends had stuff. Like, you know, you didn't really have conventions. It wasn't really the hobby like it is even in the early 90s. It was mostly just people doing stuff you might rent some games you might go to the store it, it was it was more of a a toy than it was like gaming was that much of an arcade scene <sighs> not so much for me i never really went to too many arcades back in the day sadly like now i'm really into it and i go to pinball conventions a lot and and you know um we have several ar- arcades at our office that i help uh, maintain repair and do all that stuff. so I've, i kind of got into all that really late but um i kind of wish it was around when i was a kid i know it was around but I wasn't really introduced to it. Well, obviously, you mentioned that, you know, you're a console guy with the NES, but I read that you also studied computer animation. So what kind of got your interest started in that? Yeah. So basically, I like I loved uh, 3D animated movies, but it was kind of accidental. Like I, I went to school for uh, as a bio major. I wanted to be a, a doctor and I went to Rutgers for that and they had an OK program for that kind of stuff. But um, when you're doing that as a bio major, you have to take a few art courses as a requirement. And when I was in computer animation, or sorry, when I was in graphic design class, the, the new computer animation teacher, uh, Lee Chin Tan uh, from China, he actually came and he's like, oh, I'm looking for people for my computer animation course. Do you want to join? I'm like, you know what? That sounds funny. I'll do that. And then I started taking the courses and I got really into it. We made a nice group of friends that I'm still friends with today. Um, that all have pretty good jobs uh, doing 3D animation. But in the middle of 3D animation, I, t- I started taking more um, film courses. So I actually graduated as a dual major um, in film and 3D animation. And I didn't really use my 3D animation for much because as soon as I got out of school, I got um, a job at NFL Films, which is a pretty, not prestigious, but like um, it's where they do all like the football um, stuff here but they also do a lot of movies and everything's very cinematic so that was cool for a while what what kind of software were you using and were there like any big examples at the time of 3d animation i'm, I'm not sure if uh, pixar was out by then huh? oh pixar was was killing it by then like this is when um stuff like the incredibles came out and i was just like wow uh, yeah. um or when even cars even though cars i don't really like too much but technically it's really amazing with what they're doing with um motion blur and um, particle effects and all that kind of stuff. Like I always saw these movies as like, how did they do that? Um, or Wally was really great uh, scenic film as well. So Pixar was a big inspiration. But you know, at this time you you know Shrek one and two were already out and all that kind of stuff. So regarding software at the time, um, we actually used the software that they used to make um, Half Life Two actually, which is a Soft Image uh, XSI. 
before they're using soft homage 3d which i think was used to make shows like reboot um and stuff like that from mainframe but yeah we're using soft homage xxi which you know kind of got blown apart and bought by discrete which use uh maya and i think they also own um 3ds max now i i, I think all this all the 3d companies kind of there was kind of like a a buyout and now pretty much everyone learns maya or um if you're just a regular person and don't want to get involved in that, a lot of people use Blender and things like that. So, um, yeah, but I was using a lot of stuff back then. Soft homage. I was using um, ZBrush when it first came out, but I was never really a good artist or visual guy. There's some some of my early 3D animations on my uh, YouTube channel, the Justin Silverman channel, which I, I'm not sure. I think you can get to it if you just go to uh, uh, JustinAllenSilverman.com or JustySilverman.com. I think it redirects to my demo reel. You can see my personal YouTube there. And I have all my films from films as James Rolfe would call them from middle school to um, what I'm working on nowadays. So if you want to look at my awful back, back catalog that got me here, there you go. Like we used to have this kind of phenomenon in uh, England where you'd have like one guy in the town who would be the film buff and they would either have a huge collection of VHS stuff or really niche movies. Like uh, they'd be into a genre like hammer horror or something like that. Uh, James seemed like one of these guys. Were you one of these kind of film buff guys when you were younger? Uh, not like James's, but I did have a lot of uh, movies. Like I, I had a pretty sizable VHS collection, but I mostly rented weird VHS stuff, like training videos, stuff I'd find from like uh, thrift shops, the Goodwill, um, stuff like that. I had my favorite films on the format. Um, and same thing with DVDs. Like I had a huge DVD collection, but it was mostly niche stuff or or big stuff like term like you know you know I'd have Terminator two but then I also have movies like Fantastic Planet the animated film and like uh, I I actually remember that going into the video stores myself and trying to find the most unusual and <laughs> the kind of weirdest horror title or, or yeah really interesting stuff yeah I remember me and my sister would go to uh, blockbusters or West Coast videos or any kind of that stuff and we would always go like bottom shelf horror and rent a couple of them and watch some weird vampire movie or any of that stuff. But I never got too invested into horror, especially not like James. Well, I hear you're a big Steven Seagal fan as well. And you got the kind of biggest Steven Seagal collection. Yeah. That kind of started out of, um, not irony, but, uh, you know, my friend and me were having a race in college to see who could collect the most Steven Seagal DVDs. Um, and then out of nowhere, I kind of won. And then I just kind of kept going out of spite and started collecting other stuff and other stuff and other stuff. And then less, you know, then out of nowhere, I had the largest Steven Seagal collection um, in the world, which I haven't really done anything with in a while. Um, the last thing was I drank the energy drink. Uh, he made an energy drink in 2005 and we drank it in the um, Under Siege episode of Rental Reviews on Cinemassacre. But uh, since then, it's pretty much just been used as a like a prop, like a for a wall in the um, the sets. But um, the other thing I have, I, I do have the world's largest Gengar collection from Pokemon, and that's the one that I'm still working on. So those are the only two things I collect. Well, I guess one thing I collect now. I don't really if you go to my house, I don't have a wall of video games or um, any of that kind of stuff, like a big thing of movies or anything like because because I, I have all that stuff at work and on our sets and stuff. I don't really bring all that home. Yeah, um, I, I'd noticed that you'd actually got onto YouTube really early as well. And uh, we were quite early and it was a bit of a like empty, desolate landscape. And um, you seem to put a lot of effort into it. Did, did, did oh. you think it was a bit like ahead of its time, putting that much content out? Yeah, so 
when I started on YouTube, it was in 2000, when it first started, I think 2006. And the problem with um, being in school and stuff is there was nowhere to put the videos you make. You'd have to have your own website. You'd have to put on stuff like Newgrounds, which wasn't very good for video compared to Flash Animation. Um, there is very few video sites like Adam Films and stuff like that. Man, there just wasn't a lot of places to put something like like if you wanted people to see your little short films you'd have to put them on like uh without a box or something like that which was um to get it into film festivals and and get local film festivals involved and stuff so much like early facebook which i was also on which was uh early facebook was just supposed to be like a yearbook for your school like oh i need to talk to so-and-so about studying or whatever so i was on that first week as well because um all the beta programs opened up back then so not that i want to be a part of these giant trillion dollar companies or whatever but I think having YouTube was so instrumental and you started getting in because of shows like ABGN, which they say, Hey, we can make our own shows, screw the system, screw trying to get on G4 or anything like that. We can do it ourselves. Um, so then you just kind of ended up with people trying that. So we started our first show um, underbelly in 2010 and immediately got on uh, screwattack.com and we had them on YouTube as well. We were partnered with, Screw Attack, uh, one thing led to another. We started, we left Screw Attack and went with um, Next New Networks, which was the, one of the first YouTube networks. I think it was the first. Google then bought them and created their Next Slide program to make new talent. You got a lot of guys that come out of that. We eventually ended up with Maker Studios, the MCN. We pretty much got tossed around so many MCNs and a lot of people who gave us not good or bad advice, where I think we kind of ruined a lot of our issues and then eventually much like the Beatles we kind of just fell apart and drifted apart and um you know around 2013 I started a new channel uh Silver Mania which you know it's kind of a spiteful channel we did some fun stuff but overall it was never destined for success um did that for a few years 2015 is when I finally landed at Screenwave Media which does a lot of the website stuff for Cinemassacre back then and then eventually I got to be the producer of Cinemassacre and eventually hosting things. So that's kind of the, you know, the last 10 years for you. I think in those early days before YouTube had kind of got it sorted, got its suggestions working well and its algorithms, um, it was a lot more reliant on having these independent networks or sites like E-Bombs World and Screw Attack and kind of to get that content out there and uh, into people's faces. I think so in the sense of without screw attack and some of those, you wouldn't um, the ABGN wouldn't be as big as he is and a few other people. And it also led a lot of people to realize how much ad revenue there is online and kind of shifted a market. I wouldn't say e-bombs world or any of that. So it's kind of responsible, but now that everything nowadays is uh, you know, memes and, 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 and Amazon server space and all that kind of stuff, it's um, it, it's, it definitely led to that. I don't know if a lot of people who are on um, early screw attack or E-Bombs World is still around kicking on it. A lot of people got burned out with this entire thing, but it did lead a generation of people to, you know, uh, be addicted to, you know, YouTube and their phones and stuff. So maybe it was a bad idea, but. Well, had you seen much gaming TV and was any of that retro focused? Um, in, in, in the States, all we really had was tech TV and um, 
uh, G4, really, uh, you know, shows things like Attack of the Show and X-Play and things like that, Digital Playground before it with Tommy Tellerico. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of the video stuff you'd get from just watching demo disc or they would send you a VHS tape in the mail. I have a lot of gaming VHS tapes, um, but most of it was magazine-based. Um, and a lot of those sites had uh, a, a video component, like I remember logging into like different websites from Sega or otherwise and trying to download like tiny real media videos, trying to get gaming reviews and, and stuff like that. But it, it, it took a while. Like I don't think the golden age of YouTube or any of this kind of review stuff happened until like 2010 to 2015. Like it, it took a while. Well, also, I kind of noticed uh, one thing when I visited America uh, that it was it was slightly behind in technology in the sense of uh, something like 4K would need to be rolled out uh, and people would need to have that idea of upgrading the technology. Do you think that the kind of time that YouTube came was a, a, a time when people were upgrading their computers and, and the timing was kind of right? Well, kind of. I mean, it did take... like um, So Underbelly in 2010 was... Um, the first ever 1080 um, YouTube channel. Um, every video on it from the first one to the last one was full 1080 where a lot of people were still uploading. Um, even James was uploading um, 480, like not even widescreen content around the same time. Um, so it did take a lot of people to get onto just getting HD, let alone HD TVs, let alone going from uh, the jump from DVD to Blu-ray. I mean, VHS to DVD made a lot of sense, but a lo- it took a long time for that. And I, I actually worked at Best Buy um, on and off back in the day too. And uh, when 3D Blu-rays were coming out and people didn't really understand the technology. So yeah, it does take um, time. And, and even me, like I, I kind of waited to get a 4K um, TV or upgrade to Blu-rays or e- even fully streaming just because the bandwidth wasn't there. Or you'd have to pay more for it or anything because of how the industries are kind of around here. Um, yeah, but now everyone's pretty much on the bandwagon of 4k and really nice phones and fast internet. So I think we're in a better place now. Um, but there's also such a swath of people in different areas still that don't have, um, really good internet or otherwise. So it's kind of weird. Yeah, I went into a, a store and he was, he was selling quite a lot of DVDs and I was like, Oh, have you got any, uh, 4k UHDs? And this was like a huge store and he, he just hadn't heard of the format and it was, a uh, uh, quite interesting to see uh, because there was still a lot of people buying stuff, but it, it, it just fell um, slightly behind. But also the fact that a lot of the 4K kind of content out there at the moment, uh, there's not much of it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a problem with the companies also wanting to release it or tell us in it or any of that kind of stuff. So you kind of have a problem with... Um, you know, 4K Blu-rays and all that are going to have an issue when, you know, because we're at a point now where a lot of people are streaming 4K content. So I don't know the full lifespan of 4K, um, you know, Blu-rays or anything like that. Uh, I have a few, like, of my favorite films. But at the same time, I'll also just stream that in 1080 and kind of call it a day. Well, I was going to say, um, you need to watch Starship Troopers in 4K because I know you're a huge oh, fan. Oh, trust me. I got that. I have the the Best Buy Steelbook. Really, I've, like, I think I have that movie in every uh edition that came out from the blu-ray to the vhs to the widescreen vhs to all the different types of releases of that <laughs> awesome uh rico's roughnecks um that's right h- how do you feel about kind of remastering your old footage and uh would you do anything with your old footage or like colorize some of those early episodes or do them up a bit 
if if you go, uh, as I said, if you go to my uh, right as I left college in 2000, well, because I also worked at the university after I graduated. Um, I was teaching uh, film as well when they needed people. But um, while I was there, I was uh, scanning in my old VHS tapes and all that and up converting and all that. So everything on my uh, channels actually up converted 1080 content. So it's already been done. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a job that I need to do. I've got loads of mini DVs sitting. Oh God! Oh, those don't last forever. They're like Sega Saturn games, man. Yeah, you gotta gotta get them onto FireWire and do some <laughs> mad kind of conversions. And that's probably not fun too with a lot of the um, uh, you know, PAL versus NTSC versus frame rate stuff. Because you know, like America kind of won with the internet in the sense that everything's going to be twenty four or thirty or sixty. You know that kind of stuff. And a lot of those old things that I cared about and anything from C cam to different signal file types of, they just don't exist anymore. Cause like it doesn't matter anymore. So it's, it's going to be weird. It, it, it was really weird actually. Cause a lot of the times we get uh, guys coming on, you know, talking about NTSC and stuff and they'll talk about how the games were a lot faster and, and, and we kind of only realized that we were living in another world, which was, you know, right. a slightly slower world than you guys. Yeah, it is kind of interesting uh, for that. Well, obviously, you're a producer on Cinemassacre. How did that come about? Well, I actually knew James early on, um, probably in ooh, 2006 or seven. He was already he was just graduating or already graduated from uh, University of the Arts in Philadelphia. And I went to Rutgers and Camden, which was across the river here. So um even though we're different states, it was right next to each other. And he put a uh, his Dead or the Better movie in our uh, – we had a film festival at Rutgers. He put it in there, and he won. Um, and he couldn't make it to, like, get the award or anything like that because he was just kind of putting it in all film festivals in the area. Um, but I, I talked to him and knew, him about, knew about him from that. I think I might have met him when I picked up a copy, something like that. But um, when he started doing The Nerd, I was like, hey, I know that guy. He was at the film festival and all that kind of stuff. So – from there, I just kind of kept track of them. And then in um, 2010, when we were doing our underbelly stuff, we would, uh, because we we're on the same network with Screw Attack, we would go over to his place sometimes and he would let us borrow gear, like even stuff like the laser active headset and stuff. Like he was very like, yeah, you know, you can make your own stuff cool. So we did the same kind of things. We had a, you know, a character that was like a Nintendo suit guy, but he was like a villain. So we had a lot of that going on and he was very helpful and, um, appreciative of other people in the area kind of doing the same thing and yeah that kind of led me working for uh screenwave media and because of the already built relationship when he needed help making avgn episodes and producing cinemasker content i was like yeah i, I can do that um I, I know this stuff and i'm already kind of friends with james so let's do it and that kind of worked out well he's been doing that for what 16 years now um yeah <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think it's actually the 20th anniversary of what he considers uh, Cinemassacre, like the old logo and making the videos, because he considers like pretty much anything that he made, uh, even growing up to be part of the Cinemassacre, uh, like like what he considers, you know, his films, um, which is great. So I, I think that's been like, tw yeah, like about 20 years since he, he came up with the name and stuff. But he, you know, he could, his portfolio goes back to when he was like eight years old, you know? And, and kind of being is, is, is very like his identity, you know, um, there's stuff like back to the future, looking at the locations. I remember that. And, uh, mm -hmm. uh, were you, were you a bit nervous kind of coming onto something that was, uh, so associated with his, uh, personality? 
Not so much because I think we were just kind of helping more behind the scenes in terms of editing and all that. And I kind of knew the style and I've always fancied myself as a decent enough um, editor and organizer of files and people and sets and all that. So the goal was to just, um, you know, help him out on the back end and he's going to carry the weight of the, the character and personality and that stuff. And we would just do a lot of that work. And, you know, eventually we started actually being on the show, but it's more like us and James, not us and this, you know, giant character of uh, the nerd. So, it, you know, and it, it was fun acting with them. Like I was in a couple of nerd episodes, like the Spawn one, I was the clown character, but it is what it is, I guess. Um, I, I don't think it was ever scary or anything like that. Or maybe because maybe I wasn't just like a huge, huge, like a lot of uh, fans that we have at conventions that would kind of freak out about that. But um, yeah, it, it, I think it was easier just because I knew him already. And I was already doing kind of the same thing at a smaller scale. And also, like, as you said, you used to go and borrow stuff from his. You know, his his house is like a museum. So you you, will, you already have perfect sets <laughs> just with his collection. Yeah, because yeah, he has the, the VHS and the nerd room and all that stuff. Yeah, and that's kind of what we have at ScreenWave now with the... Uh, the re- the retail and rental store are sets, but it also it's technically storage for all our crap, all the games and movies and stuff. And uh, what's the creative process like on an episode of AVGM? Okay, um, so at the beginning of a year, we'll come together and we'll say, okay, what are we doing uh, the rest of the year? Usually, we take off uh, January, maybe February, and we plan out what the the 12 or 13 episodes are going to be. We try and do more at the end of the year, especially with um, Halloween and Christmas and stuff like that. We have a big pot of games that we've already played or we're thinking about, and we go back and forth with each other trying to figure out what they are. Um, And then we kind of have a rough schedule, which changes (laughs) a lot. And then we just start kind of picking them off one by one. James doing stuff, Mike doing stuff. Kieran and Tony doing stuff, either helping play stuff or write some jokes. And we all kind of come together. James has a big overriding presence of, okay, I want this happen here, here, here. Um, it's it's not assembly line now, but like we try and do as many as possible at the same time. That way things are getting done on time. Because the goal is to do one a month or twice a month if we can, aside from all the other shows and stuff. So there's a lot of that. And how how important is that schedule? Like, if if you miss one, are you getting, like, torrents of people just going, ah? Um, <laughs> no one really knows the schedule too much. Uh, there's actually an update video coming out on Friday um, for the channel. Uh, oh, I'm not sure when this podcast is coming out, but uh, it's coming out on... Oh, it should be the same day, actually, August, on the Friday. Yeah. yeah, August 7th. So, yeah, so it should already be out because that goes out at noon. Uh, where we're going to talk about our new, what our new schedule is with James and Mike Monday on hiatus and rental reviews being canceled now for more uh, scripted one-off content, um, even with us guys and stuff. So um, our goal is we're going to start releasing videos on Friday and Tuesday at noon uh, Eastern Standard Time or 5 p.m. your guys' time. So that's the goal. People, A lot of people didn't know what the schedule was because, you know, James and Mike's Monday, so it's clearly on Monday. But rental reviews was every Friday, and if even a few people, like big fans of the show, was like, "Hey, do you know when rental reviews is?" They're like, uh, "It just comes out." I'm like, "Yeah, every Friday, right?" Like, so people don't really know when to get on the bus. But now we're kind of going to give what the actual schedule is, and, and James is going to talk about what else we're working on right now. So, um, yeah, it's kind of a scary thing as well because like people get used to that content coming out, and like uh, James and Mike Mondays as well. Uh, that's been going on for a very long time. And yeah, eight years. Yeah, yeah. We we feel exactly the same about this podcast. If we were to kind of announce and stop, or it, it would be a quite a, 
a, a tough thing to do, you know, to to, to announce the change. Yeah, I, I think I'm uh, I'm pretty used to failure from Underbelly to Silvermania. Like I did a podcast with Tony from Hack the Movies, who's on Cinemassacre, called Cuddle Pile, which we only ran for a year or two with. Um, I've been knowing the start and stop projects, but you know, I, I think ending rental reviews when it when we ended it was good, and then we can start doing some podcast stuff in the future, or we can do. Um, you know, do less videos a month, but make them more high quality. That's kind of what we're focused on right now. Well, what are some of the coolest things um, that kind of cinema massacres opened up to you? And like, what are the most fun times you've had there? Um, Yeah, as I said, it was fun doing the clown from Spawn thing. It was fun doing a lot of the ideas I've had for a while now, like getting the Pepsi Man guy to be in the episode <laughs> and hunting those guys and, and, you know, doing all the celebrity stuff like Gilbert Godfrey and Macaulay Culkin. That was always really cool. And even with them, like, it's never like a starstruck thing. It's just cool working with people um, that you've, uh, you know, kind of appreciated. Um, but it's for Cinemasker, it's been fun being able to, you know, have a budget for stuff, which is good and um, be able to make stuff that we want to make. Uh, going to convention has always been a fun hobby of mine. So we get to do that more now. Um, meet a lot of people across the country, which is good. Do fun shit like drive the last blockbuster and otherwise. We're going to do a lot more. Uh, well, once, you know, all this virus stuff ends up, we're going to do a lot more uh, location tours, collection videos, things like that. Um, so, yeah, there, there's kind of a lot. I kind of just dove deeper into uh, everything I was doing in 2010, 2015, you know. I must admit, personally, I am kind of sad to hear that Rental Reviews is coming to an end because I've been a massive fan of that show um, ever since he started doing it, really. Uh, I was just curious, so kind of, you know, behind the scenes on Rental Reviews, what's kind of the process of choosing the movies and how did you kind of agree that and go forward with it? Oh, um, so pretty much, uh, I guess, uh, like one of the first iteration of it is I, I think I picked the first four or five movies and I was like, okay, I always want to talk about uh, Starship Troopers and Commando and some of my favorite more wacky stuff from the 80s or 90s and then um, James added a lot of stuff that he wanted to do um, things that he couldn't really talk about in a single video but if we have three or four of us which is what I used to do when I, I actually worked at a movie theater it was my first job and that was my favorite part there was learning about new movies and watching things with my friends there and these these older guys who were like yeah you need to watch this and do that and we need to go to this comic convention like it was very eye-opening for me uh, to be in that community and I thought um, rental reviews would be the same way. So people across the world or Cinemasker audience would be introduced to things that James did never really dove into before. James doesn't really know his eighties and nineties, bad movies. Like we do, like he's a, he's a horror sci-fi, whatever master, but we're like the garbage movie people. So yeah, but after a hundred episodes and, uh, people wanting more regular in-depth reviews, especially with James, we thought, yeah, I think we'll just cap it off here. Um, so that was kind of the point of that. And it and it's kind of good because you look back at the eighties and the nineties and you're like, man, there was so much rubbish out there. But we tend to kind of pick the the, the stuff that rises to the top at the moment. But back then, they're, they're... well, that that's the thing, right? Like you, you're kind of seeing that now with streaming platforms when you go on there and there's so much stuff that doesn't matter or gets made nowadays. Uh, back then, it was just kind of hiding at the bottom of a. Uh, you know, behind a blockbuster counter or on UHF TV really late at night and no one was really caring about it. So uh, it's good to make some of that stuff rise to the top now. But uh, you like you, you could do a show like Renoir Reviews just about one year in the 80s and never remember yeah. bad movies. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say the majority were bad, and it was the kind of uh, small ones that came and sh- shined through. You know. Yeah. So, can you kind of explain to us what a swap meet is then? Um, oh, we don't know that term in the UK. Oh, okay. Um, man, uh, yeah, I guess that's kind of a. I guess it's a place you go where people uh, pay for spots and they just sell old crap they have from antiques. Otherwise. Um, that's generally what happens at a swap meet. Usually it's like weird stuff. Like people, like some guys there just selling socks or someone's there just selling random stuff they had in the garage uh, or basement or attic. Um, but you also have a lot of people that just sell games or they're uh, resellers where they'll buy stuff from those people and then sell them in their stores and stuff like that. So it's just kind of a place. I mean, there's a lot of gaming centric swap meets or ones that take place at conventions where it is like, you know, they pay a set amount to be at a booth and then they get the luxury of having everyone come in that want to buy their stuff. So there, there are things like that too. Um, you know, I, I, every year I go to probably the, the three biggest gaming swap meets in the country, uh, too many games, Portland retro, uh, gaming expo. And there's a few other ones. Uh, Midwest gaming classic is big, but I actually haven't been to that one. Um, SoCal retro is pretty big, um, for that. Oh, uh, retro Palooza in Texas. So, um, I think there's like five to 10. And then there's a lot of local ones too. Oh, free play Florida is pretty good as well. Uh, I love their, uh, they have a great pinball selection. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of gaming conventions that solely focus on that as well. Well, you're also an event manager for too many games and you've done that since 2012. How's that event grown and what's its purpose? Yeah. I mean, too many games, uh, we went there originally as underbelly as press to kind of cover it. Cause it was our local gaming convention. Didn't really know much about it. And then I became kind of a guest there um, and then kind of got in. You kind of get sucked into it. And I became staff uh, back then. You know, there's very few staff members, maybe like six or seven. Uh, now there's two full-time employees for it, where back then that wasn't a thing. Um, uh, and, and now Ryan, from who helps uh do all the cinematic stuff he actually owns it uh with a few with a, with a few partners so uh i just kind of help do the day-to-day stuff at the event make sure things are running on time uh make sure arcade machines get rolled off trucks properly i help organize and do warehouse stuff so you know i'm, I'm the kind of guy who's you know, at Cinemassacre selling merch and doing all that kind of stuff. But then when the event's over, I'm there till 3 a.m. loading up trucks, you know. So uh, it's a very physical job, but I like doing it. It's fun. Well, um, we've had, personally, we, we do a lot of talks and panels and uh, events, and we've had about six that have been cancelled this year due to um, the virus. Um, as an event manager, I, I saw that you had to cancel uh, too many games. Do, do you think... Do you think it's going to take a while for events to kind of get back to the level they were? And and how do you think the future is going to be? I think so. I mean, they wanted us to go in. Um, we pushed back from our original June dates to September, late September. But then things here got worse again. So uh, they said only like so many people could be at the event. And, and, and it was just too much. And, and last year we had like 15,000 people. So to even try to do that, we, we decided to push it all to next year and transfer everyone's tables and uh, tickets and stuff and offer refunds and things like that till uh, to next June, I believe. So uh, we're hoping it's all figured out by next June, but who knows what's going to happen with here with, you know, the election in November and everything else going on. Uh, I know James, as he said in his video today, isn't going to any events until uh, 2021. Um, 
And we, we, we had a lot of things booked. Like I, I was flying different cities once or twice uh, a month, uh, cross country or otherwise. So miss that, but it is what it is. It's, it's nice to see some events turning into virtual ones and having kind of virtual guests and uh, everybody that would attend and be missing it still kind of turning into like the chat room. And yeah, like we, we thought about doing virtual events, but we think the time and effort to do it based on what you get out of it. Um, you know, you also have a lot of places like PAX that are saying, hey, do a virtual event like your company or whatever. But then it's like, well, that's a lot of money to do that. That's more than if we went and set up like that's you know well it's going out to more people it's like well i don't know like i'm I'm kind of against it um in general like doing and it's 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 kind of also like the traders as well they they come and make make a lot of money and that helps the organization be able to put on events and without that that's the problem is uh, you, you can do virtual concerts and programming and things like that but it's tough organizing all that to where much like a podcast like you're talking to me and we're across the ocean right now um, that's difficult to pull, you know, 20, 30, 50 different guests or otherwise together with whatever internet they have into one uh, signal without there being problems. Um, it's just a lot of infrastructure for not a lot of, uh, you know, uh, not payout, but like what you get out of it um, compared to what we're doing with Cinemasker now, which is just getting out content as much as we can because we know you guys dig it and we like, we, you know, kind of have to keep making it. So. <laughs> So let's talk a bit about Screenwave Media. What's kind of the idea behind that, and is it fun to work with them? Yeah, I mean, Screenwave started, um, it actually started as uh, pretty much uh, Cinemassacre had issues with their YouTube network at the time, and Ryan, who was already running the website stuff and app stuff, decided, well, I can get all these people together, like, you know, the Game Chasers and 8-Bit Eric and all these um, retro channels, and put them under one banner called Screenwave Media and we'll make our own YouTube network. And that's kind of what we did. Like we kind of did it out of, not out of spite, but out of, we can do something better ourselves. And now we have a, a network of over 900 uh, creators that are into, you know, um, gaming is a huge focus, um, anime, pop culture stuff, um, musicians, uh, animators, and, uh, you know, kind of make a network of those type creatives. Is it is it hard to kind of... Um balance advertising and the kind of pressure you get from advertisers i know we get advertisers asking us to advertise all sorts on this show and like we have to reject that and try and keep the quality of the kind of independent network good you know yeah i mean you've you've seen a lot of uh ads on cinemassacre uh, definitely in the last year which definitely helps out a lot with us doing our side projects and keeping us paid because you know like you have a show like you know it's bullshit and every single video got uh, limited ads and demonetize so we had to start putting uh, brand deals on those and we try and make them as unique or even for rental reviews you know we had a few on there that were like just really funny or we try and write scripts around it and work with the brands on that so it's not just like a generic reading a, a cue card but um, you know we, we try and set that up across a lot of our uh, creators and do kind of the agency angle because um, you know it's just kind of the value proposition of networks and I think offering stuff like that really helps Um because back in the day, networks were offering like 50-50 splits on your revenue. And now it's kind of a race to the bottom of, well, I, you know, like a 90-10 split with brand deals and things like that. So, And a lot of the big networks were being scammy. Like um, the Freedom Network had to leave the country and they were working out of the Philippines because uh, of issues. And 
you know, Maker got bought out by Disney and then they kind of threw everyone off the network. Like it was kind of, it was kind of messy the last five years, but um, I think we're one of the last, I think we might be the last big independently, independently owned network that is involved by like a bigger media or venture capital thing. So it was good keeping it more of not family business, but the same people. And that's, that's why I think people kind of uh, really like it and they warm to uh, Cinemassacre and stuff because they can tell that it's independent and that it's not part of the kind of the mainstream group, you know? Yeah, I guess we're, we're as independent as we can be, but... Uh, oh, yeah, every, everybody's got to make a, enough to eat at the moment. So, yeah, yeah, but you have guys like, so me, Tony, and Kieran, we all work at ScreenWave and then Cinemassacre is part of our day job. Uh, for me, it's probably half of the work I do. Um at the company and for those guys it's pretty much all they do well another aspect of the company is indie games and uh have you found that kind of it's easier to find publisher uh it's easier to find game creators and uh, like small devs retro style companies nowadays with the recent boom of indie games yeah definitely i think there's a lot of indie games coming out um and that was kind of you know we figured well we have this giant network of uh you know, retro and gaming channels. If we make our own games, we have a pathway to get them promoted or get people interested in them uh, through our network. And they would be interested in the games we're making and be part of a more of a gaming uh, centric network. And that's why when we go to events like PAX East, we have a giant booth where it's half gaming and half like a stage for people to meet YouTube creators and stuff like that. So it kind of worked out that way. Um, And it also helps that a lot of the uh, people that watch or care about stuff like Cinemasker, they want to make games with us and stuff too. So you have stuff like the AVGN game, which was in development by Sam Beddoes, who's English, and with Freak Zone Games was making that for Screw Attack, and we decided to uh, acquire the game from them and then make it anew and, and remaster it. So there's a lot of opportunities for stuff like that. And there's a lot of indie games that just come out nowadays so we kind of see who we can help or not help or help provide budget for or a, a timeline we have a, a huge uh i wouldn't say huge there's like five or six people here that are dedicated to marketing and helping with the game stuff so it, it's definitely a good part of the business and it's always good to, to, uh, to diversify and not rely on one source of income from youtube or otherwise so um we definitely like the gaming stuff so how do you go about actually finding the games and how do you decide which ones are worth publishing? Oh, it, it's it's both. People hit us hit us up if they like one of the other games we have or when we go to conventions, we walk around and ask people, you know, like, "Oh, what are you what are you working on whatever?" Um a lot of it comes under the radar of just looking like seeing trailers and stuff like that. Um a lot of people are fans as well. So it, it's kind of all over the place. We make a lot of relationships with people or meet people at conventions or parties or things like that it's more i I, it's less sinister than you'd think like seeking people out it's more like how can we help each other and um there's so many indie games right now but not a lot of uh decent publishers people that'll work directly with you and help fund things and not own your whole game or anything like that so um you know it's just about finding the right balance uh and there's a lot of games that need a lot of love and that's just kind of what it is well, um, tell us about uh, the new indie game, Dodo Peak. It, it reminds me of Cubert quite a bit. I, I was just having yeah, a Yeah, um, for that one, we helped publish and we helped port it to Switch. Um, uh, you know, as someone that can do Switch publishing or, you know, stuff like that. So um, that was a good iOS game in the, the Apple Arcade and helped port it with those guys and the uh, 
uh, the moving pieces guys in New York who uh, developed it. And yeah, it's a fun game like Qbert, very, um, you know, you, you can tell it's, it's mobile uh, type of game, like very quick, something that you, a lot of people play, say play on the toilet and then that's it. But uh, you can get a lot of fun of it, especially with the speed running of it and trying to beat your friends at times and things like that. Uh, it, it's just a fun, easy game. You know, it's 10 bucks, so it, it's pretty, it's pretty simple, but uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. We, we, we've been streaming it uh, for a few weeks now, starting our own um, screen wave streaming and things like that. We're doing, uh, you know, showing our own titles, showing a lot of other indie game titles that are out there. So yeah, uh, Dodo Peaks, a lot of fun. And yeah, it is very uh, Qbert-like. We're actually at a Free Play Florida, and the creator of Qbert was next to the um, Cinemassacre booth, and we showed him the game, and he was like, oh yeah, that's really cool, and reminds me of this and that and whatever. So nice. it's kind of cool getting love for that. Because you, know, you have games like Crossy Road that, that are based on, uh, like Crossy Road's based on Frogger and things like that. So you're seeing kind of like those old gaming concepts be reworked considering those game companies aren't working on those games anymore which is kind of a tragedy so you're seeing kind of new life into it without you know uh, the copyright police being too worried about it and also it's like kind of breaking out of its shell like i even went to an arcade and saw a huge huge crossy road that just had a single button and it was like this was an arcade unit dedicated to kind of a, a a small but popular indie game yeah, you're seeing you're seeing a lot of in arcades now, especially even if you go to round one or these bigger arcades. I'm not sure what what's in England, but um, you're seeing less of the get a ticket style. Um, oh, what the hell are those called? I forgot what they're called, but um, you know, games where you just get a ticket or you play ski ball and you get tickets out of it. Um, damn, I'll think about it by the end of the episode. Uh, you're seeing a lot of ones where it's just a mobile game, but bigger. So you see things for like fruit ninja or whatever. And I think Dodo peak, I actually said that the other day would be perfect. If you just have this giant Dodo that you're like moving around with your like hands and it's like going up and down. Like, I think it's a perfect game for that actually. But, um, but yeah, it is funny seeing mobile games now in the arcade or even stuff like guitar hero or stuff. It, it's kind of weird. You know, I've heard in the past that obviously the Nintendo approval process can be a little bit tricky to navigate sometimes. Are there any challenges of getting something released on the Switch? Uh, it's a lot. There's a lot of uh, developer portals and lot checking and localization and marketing. And it, 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 there's a lot of uh, influencer media. There, there's a lot of things you have to do to get something ready for that. Um, a lot of specifications. Um, a lot of bug fixes, a lot of programming issues, a lot of engine to engine stuff. It's not fun at all. But thankfully, I really don't have to do much for that here. I just have to try and promote it and all that. But we have a good group of programmers and, and of course, the developers themselves going back and forth with that. So we're usually, uh, much like ABGN, uh, currently we're working on three or four games at the same time, either developing, publishing, marketing, otherwise. Well, Justin, it's been awesome talking to you. And I just want to ask uh, what you're up to next. Who? Um, yeah, so Cinemasker is going to try and do podcast stuff. I'm not sure if it'll be on Cinemasker or otherwise, but we're going to try something soon. Uh, the next game we're releasing is the uh, AVGN game, hopefully uh, 1 and 2 Deluxe, which is a remaster of the first games with bonus content across all systems, including Switch. Um, hopefully towards uh we were hoping it'd be at the end of this month but it'll probably be in september but we'll, we'll have info about that soon so that's pretty much what we've been working on well justin it's been a real pleasure to talk to you this week thank you so much for coming on and being our guest and keep up the good work yeah no problem yeah.